you guys aren't already open, you can open to Ecclesiastes 3, and I'm going to pray for us before I begin. Uh, God, we just thank you so much, God, that these are your words. God, this is truth. God, we pray that we would remember that. God, that this isn't just a book. Um, It's not something that, um, God, we can find wisdom here and there from. God, it's truth that speaks life into us. So we pray that, God, wherever we're coming from this morning, um, God, good, bad, positive, joy, pain, we would understand that, God, you have given us your word as a representation of yourself. um, God, to speak life into us. God, we pray that it would be life for us this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you guys have been following with us, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this idea of chasing after the wind. And so the first first chapter, um, when Eric spoke, we we saw an overview of sort of this this meaninglessness under the sun, right? That if, if under the sun is all there is, if there's nothing over the sun, right, there's no creator, there's nothing greater, there's no greater purpose, then everything's meaningless, and what are we even doing here? And so he describes it as, as chasing, it after, chasing after the wind or vexation. Um, and so we, we find ourselves all in this place at one time or another. And so I, I would pose to you that in order to understand this book, especially this passage that we're in today, we have to understand the method that Solomon uses in order to understand kind of the, the madness that is some of these passages today. And if we don't understand the message, we'll understand the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll understand especially this, this beautiful wisdom literature wrongly. And so a lot of times we look at our Bible and we think, well, this is Ecclesiastes, this is a Pauline epistle, this is Acts, this is Paul's letter to the Romans, this is the book of Isaiah, a prophet, this is a minor prophet, and we read in the same exact way. And so Ecclesiastes is, is unique because Solomon, right, is almost coming from a place of like, hey, I'm here with you asking the same questions that you are, but he's the one that's writing it, and he's the one who's supposed to have all the wisdom. I thought I was the one who's supposed to be getting a lecture from you about how to live a life that is full of wisdom, that is full of fear of the Lord, that is bringing me closer to, to Christ. And, and Solomon is, is almost saying, no, I'm, I'm here with you. And so it's important to understand that Solomon is not a lecturer. Solomon is not getting up here and saying, all right, class, take notes. This is all going to be on your test. If you listen up, you will get wisdom, you will get knowledge, you will avoid all of my experiences, you will go through these things and you will check off all of these things because I have all the answers. He's saying, no, I've, I've experienced all these things, I've had a trillion dollars, I've had 1,200 women, I've had gardens, I've built things, I've done all of these great things and I'm still asking the same questions you're coming here and asking. And so he's more of like a, a discussion leader coming and saying, hey, ask the same questions that I'm asking. Is life meaningless? Is my toil, is my work under the sun completely meaningless? Or is, it, is there a greater purpose? And in asking those questions, he wants you to find those out for yourself. He wants you to find out the truth by asking the questions. He doesn't want you to simply look at it and say, okay, I understand now. And there's this tension, there's this angst that is Ecclesiastes. Because it's, there's parts of it where we're saying, is this, is this really... The word of God. Is this, is this something that is really okay to do in my Christianity? Ask these sorts of big God-like questions like Solomon is asking. And so it's important because Solomon is different than you. 
Solomon had more power than you could ever imagine. Solomon had more opportunity. He had more resources. He had more time, more experience. God gifted him with worldly wisdom. He had all of these things and all of these experiences. He finds himself the same place, asking the same questions. And so that's important because he has a little bit of experience that we don't have. He has a little bit of experience that I don't have at 23. But the reason we can speak into this is because people like Solomon are writing the book. And so there's three things that we have to understand before we get into this. There's three things that he says make life meaningless. Death, injustice, and humanity's inability to discern time. And so, death. Why does death render everything meaningless? Right? In Ecclesiastes 12.7 it says, For all going to die... No, no, sorry. It says, The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Everyone's going to die. Solomon seems at some points in Ecclesiastes to have no confidence that there's an afterlife. So one one grows old, one dies, one is righteous, one dies, one is full of injustice and evil when one dies, right? And so what's the point of living a life full of wisdom if at the end you still get death? There's no, nothing above the sun. If there's nothing else to look forward to, and what's the point of living a life that's laid out like this? If it's, it's just going to end in death. Injustice, right? We look around and we see injustice everywhere. Everywhere. We are more aware of injustice than any other time in human history. There's more GoFundMes. There's more nonprofits. There is more um, people rallying behind causes. You know more. Right now, as we speak, there's hundreds of divers trying to rescue a team of, of a soccer team in the Philippines that's stuck in a cave because a, a monsoon came after they were just exploring. And it's going to take days and days and days, and they may not make it out. Injustice. Why? 12, 13-year-olds and their coach. Why? Why is this happening? Injustice. It happens all around us. And so what's the point? What's the point of this life if, if we can't gain anything from our wisdom, from being godly, from our righteousness, right? if it doesn't grant us anything, if we still do all of that, and we still die, right? and we still experience injustice, and we still can't over these, overcome these things by ourselves, he's saying, this is all meaningless, it's vexation, it's chasing after the wind, you can't attain it. Humans' inability to discern the proper time, that's what we're going to be spending a lot of time in today, in, in passage, in chapter 3. In, th- in 3 verse 11, what does it say? It says, he's made everything appropriate in his time. He's made everything beautiful in his time. No one can discover what God is doing from beginning and the end. The word, the, the word no one right there means no one. means nobody. Nobody that's not God. You cannot understand what God is doing. So he's saying, all of these things I'm telling you, all of these times, all of these seasons, all of this injustice, all of this, these sufferings that people go through, we can't understand it. The only one that can understand it is the one that is over all of it. We live in time. Our lives are defined by time. What time you got up? When did you get married? When is your anniversary? What time, did you, um, what time do you go to work? What time do you clock out? What time is the party? Our life is defined by time, yet we can't understand it. We can't seem to grasp it. And it frustrates us. All these things frustrate us. We look at injustice. Why? We look at time. Why? Why can't I understand it? I thought I was was at this time in my life where these things are... And 
Those things are not happening yet. And so here's the danger, guys, and this is so important. That you're not Solomon, so you didn't have an opportunity to get at the end of all of these resources and all of this striving and say, none of it worked. The 1,200 women, the trillions of dollars, the gold, the gardens, the power, the kingship, it doesn't work. And so the danger is that we're going to go through life without ever taking these questions seriously, blinded by momentary comforts that satisfy us just, to much, just enough to make us avoid the questions. And so there's people that can go through life and hear these things and hear these tensions and say, those questions are not my questions. Those are other people's questions. Those are for non-believers. And I know Eric was, was, was describing how this book was a, a conversion-like experience for him. But guess what? These questions are not just for non-believers that, that Solomon is asking us to, inviting us in to ask. Right? Eric talked about that. In, in Psalms, we see David do this all the time. Psalm 44. What does it say? Awake. Why are you sleeping, Lord? How many of you people pray that? Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? How many of you are going home and, and, and praying those questions to God? Solomon is inviting you into asking these questions, and the danger is that we may never ask these questions thinking we are completely fine when we're not. And we end up eternally chasing after the wind and never, ever finding purpose. And so I would encourage you as we go through the next 20 minutes or so, this passage, that you would ask the questions that the test that the text is asking. Ask them along with Solomon. Embrace the tension. Because these questions are not sin, guys. <laughs> asking questions to God is not sin. Questioning God, maybe. Questioning God and saying, God, how could you? I can't believe it. Tim Keller says that the, the question right, is not the sin. It's the, it's the questioning of the fact that we have questions that's the sin. Right? It's not the confusion. It's, it's being confused that you are confused. Right? It's, it's this, this like shock that's like, wow, I can't believe I don't understand these things. And, you, and, and in that shock, you try to control it yourself. That's idolatry. That's, that's the sin in this. The sin is not asking the question and saying, God, where are you? you I, I feel like you're not here. Because we see that so many times in the Psalms. What does that do? It stirs up the affections. And as Jonathan Edwards says, it, it can actually stir up affections that weren't there before. You can sing your way back into right relationship with Jesus Christ. And we see the psalmist doing that, embracing the tensions, embracing the confusion, embracing all these things. And so the danger, as we read this passage, is we can go sort of like, oh yeah, there's a time for this, there's a time for that, there's a time for this, there's a time for that. Yeah, I know that. Okay, yep, and never ask the questions. And so let's see. We're going to be talking about three things today. Time, injustice, and suffering. All of these laid out in our passage. And what does it start off with? It started off with something that we know, one of the most famous passages in our Bible, right? Famous bird song that Eric almost just hummed while he was doing the prayer. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what's planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, Time to break down, a time to build up. It, it, it has this rhythm to it, and it's, it's, it's something good followed by something bad, right? There's clearly things that we love in here, right? Being born, yes, I would choose that over dying. 
would I choose? I would choose embracing over refraining from embracing. I wouldn't choose keeping over casting away. I would choose love over hate. So there's all these things. It seems to be this this beautiful eight verse poem, but it's followed by verse nine, which is actually kind of bleak. It says, "What gain has the worker from his toil?" I've seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. So he's saying, all of these times, we can look through this and say, everybody in here, in this room, can identify with one of the seasons that is mentioned here. Some of you are in a time of just deep hurt and pain. Some of you are in a time of loss. Some of you are in a time where babies have been born, and it's celebration. Some of you are at a time where I'm, I'm in the process of planning a wedding and getting engaged. It's awesome. It's, it's great. Some of you are, in a pro, are in going through problems in your marriage. And so we have all of these things happening right here, right now. And we can't necessarily say, I know exactly why this is happening. Why? Because in verse 11, right, he's made everything beautiful in whose time? In his time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning into the end. So he's saying, this is a list of things that happens. Oh, and by the way, you can't find out why. You're not going to be able to. And so it's easy to read this list and say, you know what, I just, uh, I just feel like uh, I'm just in a real season of hating my boss, you know. I just I don't feel like I'm getting the justice that I deserve. I, don't, I, I just feel like I'm in a real time of um, just casting away stones, you know, just closing a chapter. I'm just in a, in a time where I, I just I really want to kill one of my siblings, you know. I just, I just feel like God is just... It's not meant to be prescriptive, guys. He's not writing this so you can look through it and say, well... Let me try to figure out the season of life that I may be going into or coming out of or, or going through, and I will speak that over my life and over my future. He's saying, no, you're not going to know why these seasons come and seasons go. And some of it may be seemingly random, even though you know that it's not random. It's descriptive, guys. He's meaning, hey, I've lived a long life. I've seen a lot of things. These are things that happen. These are things that come over all of history. We can look back 50 years 100 years, 2,000 years, they, they still happen. People are born, people die. People, people plant, things grow, or they die, right? People love, people hate. There's time for war, there's time for peace, always. And so we have to be able to understand that that confusion means that God is big, and that's okay that God is big. We have a big God. If we could understand all these things, God would be small and boring. And we wouldn't have that awe that we have in worship. We wouldn't have that awe that we see in some of the more poetic books, right? Where people are just falling at their knees in the presence of Jesus, the presence of Yahweh. Because we see that God is great. He's unable to be understood. And so we can often say, what's the point, right? What's the point of working hard? What's the point of seeking cures for diseases, if people still die from diseases? What's the point of trying hard to know that I can't completely control the seasons in my life? That word gain, what, what gain has the worker from his toil? It means progress. It means that there, there's seemingly no progress, even though we continue to work. Anybody feel that? Sometimes in their life where they're like, man, I'm just working harder than I ever have, have worked, and there's, there's seemingly no progress in my life. 
Or there was progress and then it just went away. That's just what he's talking about. It's an endless, endless cycle. But it's not meant for us to, to be the God over our own life. It's saying God is the one who's planning all these things out. He, God is the one who's planning these seasons out. And so God exists out of, outside of time. Psalm 91 through 4, it's beautiful. It says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. It means that God sees these seasons, he's over all of these seasons, and he's not surprised, he's not shocked when you have some questions for him, he's not shocked when those things happen in your life that are seemingly random and, and, and unjust, he's not shocked by the fact that there's these crazy things going on in our world, it's not out of his control, but sometimes we think that we can understand it. And, and, and an example that I want to use is we used to, we used to always go to, um, actually, we went to the place that we're going to for our youth retreat this year, and we used to stop at Lancaster and go to the corn maze, right? It's a huge maze. They'd always make it out to be like some, like, tractor or, like, this, like, beautiful, like, mosaic or something. But when you're in the maze, you just have a map. And there's, there's, no, there's no reason to believe that the maze is actually the picture until you, what, you get on a plane. And you fly over it and you see, wow, that is actually a tractor. In the, in the middle of it, you just feel like it's just like an endless tunnel of nothingness. And you want to get to the end and you can't get to the end. You feel like it's the end, so then you end up like cutting through the corn and like breaking all the rules. We did that. I don't know why we did that. Um, but uh, just a bad idea for, for you. I, I wouldn't do that with our youth. I just wouldn't know how to like keep track of all of them. It's like you're loosening them in a corn maze, but I give you props. Um, anyways, um, you, can't, you can't understand the full picture until you get up on the plane. But guess what? You are not ever allowed to go into that fly zone. It's, it's restricted. It's God. It's God. And so we look at our life and we say, this is the season that I'm in. This is the, this is the time that I'm in. It's a time for this in my life. It's a time for this in your life. I mean, God is looking over it and he's saying, No. No, but it's okay that you have questions and go to me and seek me out and, and, and try, to, try to understand these things. But seek me first because I'm the one who's weaving and making all of these things beautiful. I'm making them good in their time. So Ecclesiastes 3.12 says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Sorry, I'm reading the wrong thing. No, I'm reading the right thing. Um, also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. All right, you cannot control time and circumstances. So what is he saying? What's his conclusion? Take joy in the simple things in life. and Don't miss it. Stop worrying about trying to understand and be God. You're not God. You're not God. You can't understand all of these seasons that God is is orchestrating. Some of these seasons are tough. Some of these seasons are awesome. But both have a sense of, of randomness because we're not the creator. We don't have the full backstory. And so how can we do this? How can we, how can we look at all of these seasons as tough and as joyful 
as, as painful and as awesome as they are, and do that. Verse 12. Everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all of its toil because that's God's gift to, his man, to, give to man. How can we do that? We see that we have to be able to trust God. We have to be able to trust God. It's like, it's like someone, I was reading um, this commentator this week, and he said that it's almost like when, you were, when you're doing projects with others and there's always that unreliable kid, you know? And you're like, you get that like, oh crap feeling when like, you all got to do a separate part of the project. And you got Joey, and man, you know Joey's not going to do his part. Um, and you may get a 75 on the, the thing because all of the, the person are doing their 25%, but then he may not even show up on the day that it's due. And so he's saying, like, sometimes we treat God like that. We treat God like Joey, like, oh, like, Joey's not going to show up. He's unreliable. We, we, we ask him, like, are you going to be there? Are you sure you're going to be there? You, you sure you're going you're gonna to be there to clean up my mess and you're going to be there to give me instructions and give me things? And God's like, uh, no, um, I've predated everything in existence from everlasting to everlasting. I am God. There's no surprises. I'm weaving this. The dust particles in the air are falling exactly how I want them to because I hold every single thing in my hands. So we should go to him as, as somebody who, who has that. But oftentimes we're, we're asking him to be there and to show up in the seasons of our life rather than saying, I trust you, God. I trust you that you're Lord of everything, but you're also good. And so, second, right, we have an inability to understand time. And it leads us to a place of awe in a God that is above everything. Justice. What is he saying here, too? What gain has the worker from his toil? There's no progress. If there's no progress, that means that there's also no justice. Verse 16 and 17, what does it say? Moreover, I saw that the sun in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. What he's saying is that he looked in the place of judgment. He looked at the people who really run things in this world, and he saw wickedness. Do we ever feel that? Look at the people that over just the last like 50 years who have been in charge of things that matter to our society, to our nation, to the world. There's a little injustice there, right? There's a little oversight. There's a little things that we feel like should be done that are not getting done. Causes we feel like should be, we should be rallying troops for that somehow troops are not rallied for. Churches that have done things in the name of Jesus Christ that are causing pain and injustice and hurt in communities. These things we can't explain. And so Solomon is just observing this and saying that this doesn't make sense, right? So he's aware of injustice and sin. But why? Why? Why is this? Why do we all have this awareness? Because you all do it. You all have this awareness. We all have this, this feeling inside of us that says, that's not right. And nobody has to tell you it's not. You can just see something and say, that's not right. And so what is this? In verse 10, it says, I've seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. 
He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, this is the key, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. Right? If you, if you look at your footnotes, um, or your cross-references, sorry, um, you see that in that verse, what's the cross-reference there? Genesis 1.31. That, that term beautiful literally means God looking over it and saying, hey, this is good. Right? As we see in Genesis 1.31, he's saying, and all that I made, this is good. And so he's created you with this feeling of everything should be good. That's the Imago Dei. It's the impression, that God-like impression that he left on all of our hearts, that only eternity and eternal things can fill. And so we look at this world and we say, it's broken. It's, this should be happening. This is not happening. Why am I not fulfilled? Why? And, and, and God is trying to help you to understand that you can't fill it with anything but me. Nothing is going to be filled by just fixing the injustice or just getting out of the season you're in or just trying to understand time or getting more knowledge or getting more power. He's saying, Solomon, I did all that. I did all that. I chased after the wind, and I'm still chasing. And because eternity is written in our heart, it means that we have a Father that's written it on our heart. And it means that we have an eternal longing that will continue to be an eternal longing until we bend our knee to Jesus Christ. And so we're aware of injustice and sin because we were created in light of perfection and eternity. And we will not get that until, until glory. Until we have an interaction with the Holy God that has a personal relationship with us. And so how do we explain these things? How do we understand these things? There's a lot. There's a lot to this text. And so as we look at our last, our last point, suffering, right? We talk about time, our inability to understand that. We talk about injustice, how we see it, because it's written, eternity's written on our heart, and we, we, we somehow can't describe it, but we know that it's not there. It, it creates a, a longing for something greater. And then there's suffering, seemingly random, unjust suffering that we all go through. That, that seems to be without explanation, that seems to come at times when we least expect it. And, and they're listed in the seasons, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh. I would, I would love to laugh all the time and not weep. I would love to be a part of seeing new life and new birth and not having to go to funerals and see people pass away and see friends from high school OD. And I, I, I don't want to see all of that but yet it still happens. And so we can understand the times in our life where we receive blessing and prosperity partly because we think we've done something to deserve it. And when good comes our way, when a good woman comes our way, a good job comes our way, some success comes our way, we think, yep, God's rewarding me for what I did because I am, man, I'm not being Solomon. I am not chasing after the wind. I'm chasing after the Lord and he is rewarding me. But what do we struggle with? What do we really struggle with? Random, unjust suffering. Why? Why, why the rescue happening today? Why, why this whole thing in, you know, these, these innocent kids? Why are they suffering? Why, why? They were just trying to find some shelter. Why are they suffering? Right? Why, why sickness in my family? Why sickness in my life? 
Why, why this progress in my life and then suddenly the carpet's ripped out from under me? Why, why all these things? And so often blessing is just as random as suffering, but we don't, we don't realize it because we, we can explain it better. And so what this passage is saying is none of it's random. We just feel the weight of that because we don't have the means to be able to explain it. So asking God questions and questioning God are two different things. I want you to understand that. As we go through, I have eight responses um, to how we deal with suffering. Asking God questions and questioning God are two different things. And as we, we embrace this tension of what this, this looks like, ask God those questions. And if you have those questions here this morning, be free to confess them. Be vulnerable. Tell it to our kids all the time. Parents, if, if you're not vulnerable with your kids, if we're not a community here that's vulnerable, we're going to be raising kids that think that they can just put on a face, come to church, and think, man, I have all these questions about God, about how time, about suffering, about these things in my life, about the anxieties I have, but nobody seems to ask me the same questions that I do. Someone's got to lead the way with asking these questions and saying, hey, I have these questions. I've been a Christian for 23 for, for 20 years or 40 years or 50 years, and I still have these questions. You know why? Because God's big. He's unexplainable. He's over all of things. He's sovereign. He's good. I, I can't understand all of these things. And so we have genuine, generally eight responses to suffering. So the first one is we can deal with it. Anybody ever told you that? Hey, uh, I know you're going through a lot, but deal with it. Um, and it's, it's even better when they say, I've dealt with it. I've dealt with it before. I've, I've gone through it. How, how comforting is that? And so what's, what's the problem with, with saying, hey, just endure it. Just, just deal with it. It removes, removes your cares and desires, doesn't it? It removes your, any ability for you to want to be motivated to do that. Nobody wants to hear, hey, just, just deal with it. You know, I, I've actually been through that, and I just, you know, I just sucked it up, deal with it. It almost like deflates your entire humanity, doesn't it? And so the second response you can have is to deny it. You, you know anybody like this? Maybe this is you. It doesn't exist. If, if, you don't, if you don't think it exists in your life, then it won't. And it's all in your mind, and you're not really going through it, but you can just, just deny it. It doesn't exist. What does that do? It makes your hurts seem small and unimportant. If you come to somebody and you're saying, I'm just pouring my heart out, I'm going through this, I don't know what to do, and you just said, well, just forget it exists, deny it. Saying, did you just pass over everything that I was trying to say? Did you even have a chance to empathize with me? You just told me to forget about it? To act like it's not there? Number three is something that we do a lot. We speak for God, don't we? God's involved in the good, but he's not involved in the evil. You know, somehow in the cosmic, you know, layout of everything, God knows the future, but he, he, he's not in control of it. And, you know, I, it's, my, it's my free will that I can just do the bad things, but God is really not sovereign over the things that are bad. It somehow works out all for good. God's in control of it all. There's a tension in the Bible. The Bible does not shy away from it. God is 100% sovereign. He's 100% good. And so there was actually a round table that um, Tim Keller did when he was doing the reasons for God, and someone asked, well, how do you explain unjust random suffering? And he said, well, no better than you, but I have a God that's good, that's sovereign over all of it. 
And that gives me way more comfort than you thinking that evil just exists out in the nebulous and that it has its way and rule over everything. He's saying, I have a God that says, I am over this. I'm making everything beautiful in its time. And though I can't see the times and seasons and changes, he's doing that. We can take fault, right? Some people look, at it, look inward and say, it's my fault. There's no, there's no purpose in suffering other than punishment. God must be punishing me. There's something that I did. There's something that I did wrong. How, how could this be happening to me? There's something that I did wrong. We take fault. But what happens? Is that, that just want to make you worship God more? No, it, it crushes you with guilt, doesn't it? You find yourself in a place where you are absolutely just at a dead end. We challenge it. Number five, we challenge it. We can challenge it with our own truth or our own thinking of the day. This is the millennial um, approach to suffering, right? We can say, well, my truth is what I'm feeling, and, and I, I feel like this is the way that I should live, and this is the way that I should be living out my life. And so we, we challenge truth with um, truth of the day that, it, that comes and goes as the wind. But what basis do we have? What if somebody else's truth says that your truth is wrong? What do you do? if every truth is supposed to be true? What do you do if someone else's truth says your truth is wrong? We have a Bible that says God is the way, the truth, and the life. It's his truth. It's not our truth. We can avoid it. We can avoid commitments. We can avoid covenants. We can avoid unhappiness, potential dangers. We can live life in a bubble, always looking around the doors saying, well, that could potentially be hurtful. That could be you know, an opportunity for suffering. I don't want to take that job because there's risk. I don't want to be, you know, I just want to make sure, so i got to date this person for 10 years before we get engaged. Or not get married at all. It's, it's the thinking of our day. I can avoid it if I just pursue my own happiness. I just find it out in some way other than living costly Christianity. And when suffering comes, you will not know what happened to you because you'll be blindsided. Because you'll be com- configuring your whole life around avoiding it, and when it finally comes, you won't know what to do with it. You can blame it. Number seven, you can blame it. All right? You can say, if I'm just angry enough at somebody else, then it will fix all my hurts. It's my, it's, it's my parents' fault. It's, it's the, the schooling that I was raised up in. It's, it's that experience that happened to me. It's those people that were around me. It's that job that, that had a hold over me. It, it, that's what took my joy. That's what took my ability to be close to Jesus. That's what made me like this. We can blame our suffering on others, thinking it'll fix our hurts, but ultimately we know. We know at the end of the day. It's, it's not other people. We can invite it, and this may sound shocking, but some people don't feel worthwhile unless they're suffering. Some people identify so much with their suffering that unless they are suffering, they don't feel like they have any worth. They feel like they are better than you because they are suffering. They feel like they actually embrace it. Now, they don't avoid it. They embrace it. They fully take it on, saying, I will go through this because this gives me attention. It gives me it gives me the care of others. It brings the focus on me. It gives me a story. It gives me an ability to, to identify with this struggle. And if I continue to struggle, then I'll have con- continually have something that other people will talk about with me. And it's not true. 
It's not true because we can't find our identity in our suffering. We can only find our identity in the one who suffered for us in our place. And so Matthew 12, 42, as we close, it says, it says this. Read with me. It says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Who is something greater than Solomon? And so how did, how did Jesus, right, if he's greater than Solomon, means he has more wisdom than Solomon, more experience than Solomon, it means that he's not, he's not a seminar leader or discussion leader who's saying, ask these questions, I'm going to ask these questions with you because I have these same questions. He doesn't have any questions. He invented questions. Vented your opportunity to even ask him questions. He knows everything. And so this is Jesus' response to suffering. Did he deal with it? Did he just deal with it? Did he just suck it up, suck in his emotions? No, what did he do? He asked questions to God in the, the garden. He wrestled with God and even asked questions in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about that one. True, inspired word of God. Innocent, completely holy, completely perfect. Jesus Christ asked God questions. Is this really your will? Deny it. Did he deny it? No. He was fully aware of his suffering and the sufferings of others. He never downplayed people's hurts or struggles. In fact, he was the one who empathized with people's struggles. Did he speak for God? Being God, he didn't even speak for God, right? He humbled himself to the point of death, right? He humbled himself to the will. Not your will, but mine, God. This is tough. Not your will, but mine, God. Fully submitted to the Father's will and accepted and trusted the fact that he was pleased to crush him. Think about that. Did he take fault? He couldn't. Perfectly sinless and holy, right? Did he challenge it? Did he say, hey, you know, God the Father, I know we're, we're three in one, but hey, I'm breaking off here. I'm challenging it. It's not true. It's not your will. Jesus did not pursue his own truth like man, but passed the test in the garden as a second Adam and was fully obedient. Did he avoid it with many opportunities? To use his divinity to make things easier, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and humbly looked to suffering and injustice right in the face and endured it. And lastly, did he blame it? No. John 10, 18 says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it up again. It was no one's fault but his own. Who killed Jesus? God did. It was planned. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before there was even reason to send a sacrifice, Jesus Christ had already sent the sacrifice before the foundation of the world, choosing you, coming after you, loving you, saving you, going through all of these things, all of these sufferings, all of this unjust, seemingly random sufferings that we continue to see in our world. He fully embraced and stepped into. And what did he do out of all of those things? Did he deal with it? Did he deny it? Did he speak for God? Did he take fault? Did he challenge it? Did he avoid it? No, what did he do? He used it. He used his suffering to save his friends. He used his experiences to be the God of all comfort that can identify with all of our struggles and suffering. And so, time, what about time? As we close, three things. God is making everything beautiful in its time. God is making everything beautiful in its time. He holds the world in his hand, but he also holds the power to restore your life in your salvation, in the fact that he purchased your salvation. That's the transformation in your life. 
All things work together for good to, for, to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. He's making everything beautiful in the, in the whole grand scheme, the 10,000-foot view of life, but he's also doing that in your own heart. Seasons in life. What about injustice? What does it say? What does it say at the end? It says, So I saw that there is nothing better than what a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot, who can bring him to see what he will be after him. Um, he's seeking all of those things that have been driven away. Everything will be held accountable. God is the complete and holy, perfect judge. And he's completely good, which means that all of the injustice that we see in our world, all the things that we see that are just hanging, waiting for somebody to come in and go, he will either save those people, right, and usher them into eternity with forgiveness, or he will be the final judge on judgment day. He will make all things new, but he will also judge all of those things that are unjust. And suffering, what, what about suffering? Jesus stepped into time and suffered just as we did so that he could use it to save us and be the God of all comfort in our sufferings. And so the explanation for the seasons in our life is only the incarnation. That's it. It's only the incarnation. There's nothing else that can explain it. There's no way that you can put it. There's no knowledge that you can have. There's no experience that you can have that can explain it away. There will always be these tensions. We'll always be chasing after the wind. We will always be trying to figure out why does this look the same and the same and the same. And God says, I know why. And you're never supposed to know why. So continue to ask questions and pursue me and to be vulnerable and to be honest and to confess and to repent and to, to chase after me. But guess what? Know that the only way to understand how to get through these things is to understand that I used my suffering to get you. And that for your prosperity and for your transformation, for your growth, you have to use those things in your life to maybe touch someone else or remind yourself of the truth of the gospel here this morning. And so suffering is not your punishment, it's your formation. It's your formation. And it's our call as we go to the ends of the earth to take that formation that we've had in our own life and share it with others. And say, this is what I've learned. Walk with me. Use your suffering. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. God, that you are God, the perfect and holy example that went before us. God, that through all of these things that we don't understand, we don't have explanations for, God, we don't claim to know. Um, God, we look above the knowledge of men we look above, um, God, the, the thinking of our day and we rest on the fact that there is a sovereign, loving God who cared enough to be intricately involved in our life and send his son into time to suffer the same things we suffered so that he could draw us close to himself and say, I know where you're at, but I also have a solution and it's my son. God, we pray that we would... We would believe that this morning, that if we have questions about that this morning and what that looks like and who that is and who Jesus is, that we would ask those questions, we wouldn't be afraid of those questions, that if we have legitimate doubts here this morning, God, that we would pull someone aside and ask those questions. God, we thank you that you're the answer, that you never change. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.